Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey, your host. And I'm your co-host, Aubrey Sampson. Hey, we want to, before we jump into anything else, we want to tell you about something that we're doing as the year 2020 closes. We'd love to hear your feedback. So we are doing a survey. Uh, We have not done this in a long time. We did this kind of back in the early days of the podcast, but we'd love for you to help us out by filling out a survey about your thoughts on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. And uh, in exchange, we're going to give away 10 $10 Amazon gift cards to 10 random people who fill out this survey. Uh, what could you do with a $10 gift card, Aubrey? Man, I am I was literally just thinking, I want a $10 Amazon <laughs> gift card. You should fill there, out a I survey. Mean, <laughs> there are so many books on my Amazon That's wish true. list. I'm just, I'd start, you know, knocking. I wouldn't buy other people gifts. I would buy myself <laughs> buy gifts, if I'm being honest. My own Christmas <laughs> gifts. I'll put them in my stocking. There it is. Well, this is how you fill this out. It would be a huge favor to us. We would absolutely love to hear your feedback. If you text NIW survey to the number 66866. Again, that's NIW survey, no space, all just kind of a sandwiched word right there. NIW survey to 66866. You can also go to nothingiswasted.com slash podcast survey, but that is way too complicated. So just text (laughs) NIW survey to 66866 and we'll send you uh, in return just a link to fill out the survey. And again, to 10 random people who fill out the survey we're going to give away $10 Amazon gift cards. It's going to be awesome. I'm filling it out. I'm going for that. <laughs> Aubrey, today we have some special guests that uh, you actually helped to introduce us to. You know them. You go to grad school with mm-hmm. Cassie, but our guests are Nick and Cassie Brown. What an incredible interview. I am so excited that we have Nick and Cassie. So um, Taylor, who's also our podcast producer, and I and Cassie are all in grad school together at Wheaton. We're part of the Propel Women cohort. We're studying evangelism and leadership together, getting our master's degrees. And um, Sounds so special. Um, And Cassie is a nurse. Cassie is a a powerhouse of a woman. And uh, as we'll hear her story... Man, they went through a really hard time yeah. at the beginning of COVID, and I don't want to spoil everything, but yeah. um, we'll hear how God really moved in their story. I know. One of the things that uh, kind of thematically that I, I felt in this conversation, you're going to hear her make reference to this, is this idea of being elevated through our suffering, mm-hmm. which is really an interesting concept because it kind of feels upside down in some ways, but the reality is, and I see this often with people who have devoted themselves and kind of surrendered themselves into, you know, whether it's full-time ministry or just saying, Hey God, I just want to, I want to be used by you in a very special yep. way. I don't want to la- waste my life. Uh, often what you find is that before you kind of step into calling, step into uh, the plan that God has for you, there is this pathway of pain Mm-hmm. that you that you walk through. And I mean, we, we see it so many times. I felt like I experienced it in my own life um, in the sense that it was our tragedy that kind of put us a little bit more on a platform to be able to spread the gospel. Which yeah, like we propelled can, you into ministry a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of in a different state of ministry, of a, a broader reach of ministry, mm-hmm. which is something we have to be careful about. We can talk about that in just a second. But I think there is something to this because yeah. I honestly think that... Um, 
I honestly think it's, it's a, before we can step into our calling, it's almost a prerequisite that we go through some crushing. I also wonder too, if the, <laughs> I'm just thinking about how the crushing, you just said, you just said this, Davey, and I wasn't <laughs> thinking about this before. The crushing is like where the oil comes, right? It is, like, yep. I mean, so there yeah. there is something about that crushing place, that like pressing place right. where anointing happens. And I, I do think it's where God says, okay, I have some ministry yeah. for you. Or I have something that I want you to do. Um, and again, this is where it gets tricky because you don't want to say God brought evil to, into your life. No, However, uh -uh. what we know is through these crushing seasons, God does some major heart right. stuff, right. right? Like you have to answer some questions like, do I love God for blessings and benefits or do I love God for God's sake alone? Yeah. Am I here for my own sake and my own glory or am I here for the name and renown of Jesus Christ? Like the Lord does that in yep. those crushing seasons. He readies you for it, right? He does ready you for it. He, he readies you for it in, in, in that he gives you the tools that you're going to need, the insight into, you know, the, the mysteries of God in through this pain. Yep. But, but also, you know, he readies your spirit to where you can walk in that in humility with a limp rather than a swagger. Mm, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like the, the thorn Absolutely. in your side kind of thing where you're like, yes. Hey, I never really wanted this impact or this reach. Yeah. Didn't want it in this way. Yeah. And so it's kind of this bittersweet thing mm -hmm. that, you know, on one hand reminds you that God doesn't waste things, but on other, the other hand, it's like, kind of keeps you humble. I think. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I think the other thing is that it, um, Certainly, have having walked through suffering and seeing God's active, compassionate presence in it, you are able, I think, with faith to say to people who are hurting, "No, no, no, God will meet you here," because yeah. you've seen yeah. it, right? Like you can minister from a place of experience and encounter rather than just like, "Oh, I hope this right. is true." Instead, you can say, "Like, no, I have seen God in the valley, yes. and He shows up." I love that you mentioned earlier the idea of crushing and oil because. If we think about the picture that we see of Jesus's life in this, so Jesus was elevated to the right hand of the Father. When? Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Well, it happened <laughs> after happened after the crucifixion right. and the resurrection, right? Where he's elevated to the place of the Father. And yep. the prerequisite to that elevation was him walking as a human being in humility. And Philippians 2 tells us that he that he walked in so much humility even to, even unto death, right? Yeah. He became a servant even unto death. Yeah. And therefore, God elevated him to the right. highest of place. But even before the crucifixion, we see the, the imagery of Jesus going through crushing in mm. the place geographically that actually marks, the name is, is marked by that concept. So the Garden of Gethsemane yeah. means the place of pressing. Wow. Because there's an olive press. Now, one of the things that, uh, that I, we talk about uh, in the book, nothing is wasted. Whenever we get a chance to release that, and the thing One day. that I, the thing that I talk about in the in Psalm twenty three, the signature talk that I'm kind of carried to a lot of different churches as we share our story, is that the other common language of the day refers to that place, Gethsemane, as Gadsemane, which means directly translated, the place of ascension. Mm, no way. So how crazy is it that two diametrically opposed concepts, the ones we're talking about right now, pressing and ascension, down, up, both hand hand. become the identifier for this one site, which also, I mean, think about this. This is the place, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascended back up into heaven, 
Yep. After appearing to, you know, yep. over four. And then uh, it's the place we believe he's going to ultimately come back. He's going to descend, right? Yep. And set everything right yep. and establish a new yep. heaven, new earth. And yep. so, there, I mean, there's such, there's such richness in the reality of God wants to put us in spaces of ascension or elevation, right? He wants to give us influence and reach. Yep. He wants yep. to carry out his kingdom and renown through us as we partner with him. But the prerequisite often is that we walk through something difficult. Isn't it fascinating how much paradox there is in the Christian life? <laughs> I, I mean, just hearing you talk about the place of ascension is also the place yeah. of just desolation, right? But right. what a good God we have that he uses those seasons in order to get us to yeah. a place of of greater influence or, or greater ministry impact again for his name. Absolutely. was thinking about 1 Peter 5, 6, which says, humble yourself before mm-hmm. the Lord and he will lift you up in his due time. And that's, that's exactly what you're talking about. That's it. And that's and that tells us how we should approach this then, right? Because so many times in our culture, we approach, I mean, even with like the whole idea of, of you should have your own personal brand, we approach our, right? We approach this idea of like, we should elevate ourselves, elevate ourselves. Yes. And that's, and you know, Let's take our cues from Jesus. Mm. Jesus never elevated himself. He was elevated, right? He didn't elevate himself. In fact, I had a mentor tell me one time that every time someone tried to elevate Jesus, when they tried to put him into notoriety, he always sought obscurity. I mean, think about that. That's so opposite to the culture that we're in right now. I was reading Luke 4 and Luke 5 this morning, and, and Jesus... Uh, he'd done a lot of healings and, and miracles and the people were looking for yeah. him and he went and sought isolation. He's like, no, right. I need to get away. And then Got again, away. in Luke five, the like crowd is gathering around him and he's like, you know, I'm going to go out on that boat yeah. over there. And even though he's still teaching, he's like, you said, continuing yep. to remove himself from any sense of like, this is about my fame or my glory. Like he right. knew this was about his father's business and that he was going to death, not to his name and lights or whatever. Right. I know, I know we don't have time, but we're like on a roll right now, Aubrey, because this, <laughs> this is we such an important concept. Well, it is. I mean, if you think about this is, this is really the end of this, the idea, the simple idea of it, it's not about me. Right. And how yeah. do I, how do we, how do we walk in humility? But isn't it crazy? That, I don't remember where it was in scripture that says that they tried to make Jesus a king and he refused them. It's somewhere mm-hmm. one of the one of the gospels. It talks about the situation. Well, then I think it was right afterwards that they also tried to kill him. And throw, I mean, they tried to throw him off of the a cliff, right? Which, which tells you here's a reason why you shouldn't seek elevation for yourself, because people will elevate you, people yeah. will heroize you, yeah. but then really quickly they will demonize you because we were not meant to hold the weight of people's worship. That's right. Only one person is Jesus. Yeah. Yep. He is, we are under kings. We are That's viceroys. It. He is the king and it's, it's his name that I matters. like that term, viceroy. That's a good one, Aubrey. I oh, like why, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Nick and Cassie are going to uh, talk about, through their story, you're going to see some of this. And I think what we experienced in just hearing from them is it seemed like there was just an, an anointing that came from them because Absolutely. of the experience that they've walked through it with you know their pain during COVID-19 and Man, you're, it's just it's an awesome conversation. So I'm so glad that you, as the listener, get to get to kind of take a peek into a little bit of their life through this conversation.
Nick, Cassie, great to have you guys on the podcast with me. Thanks for joining me. It is great to be here. Well, I would love to, before we dive into your story, I mean, this story is very uh, relevant. It's very, um, very much a topic that we have not talked a whole lot about, at least from this standpoint. Um, but it's something that, man, all of us are dealing with right now on some degree or another, whether we're directly or indirectly affected by COVID. And so I want to get into um, what was taking place in your life at the beginning of this year. But first, let's uh, just hear a little bit about your family. Kind of give us the the current context of who you guys are, where you live, what your family looks like, and then we'll dive back in and, and hear your story. Sure. I, uh, I'm a IT director for a bunch of school districts uh, in rural Ohio. Um, we service about five counties, so I'm stretched pretty thin across that region. Um, we, my wife and I have been married uh, going on 16 years now. We have three children. I've got a 20-year-old who's moved on um, and doing his own thing, and then we've got a 12- and uh, 10-year-old as of yesterday. So um, that's kind of the makeup of the family, and then uh, a dog and a cat. So that, that rounds us out. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, Cassie, what is it that you, what do you do for a living? I'm actually a nurse. So okay. current, my current job, I'm in transition. So my current job is I serve people in their homes in rural, rural Ohio. So I go in and teach them how to do medical stuff. Um, help them with care, navigate that. And then I'm transitioning into um, an assistant director position at a skilled nursing facility. So I'll have in between 50 to 100 staff members that I'll be overseeing for um, clinical care. Wow. Wow. Well, I know off air, you mentioned that you have been up to this point taking care of COVID patients. And so, I mean, that is in and of itself being a, being a caretaker or attending to first responder um, in these types of situations. Uh, that's a lot of trauma and pressure and stress in and of itself. But you guys uh, walked through something that you never thought you you would, uh, at least to this extent, to this degree. And so um, I'd love for you to take us back to kind of the beginning of when this started for you. Yeah. And actually, I mean, when we go clear back to the beginning of when it first started, um, it was at a time where it wasn't even really, uh, you know, common like it is today. Everybody mm. talks about it and it's, you know, all over the news. Um, as a matter of fact, when I first went into the hospital clear back in uh, the early part of March, um, the governor had just for the first time come on TV and started to talk about just the few cases that Ohio had. Oh, wow. uh, as a matter of fact, I got to be the very first case in our county. Um, and, you know, as I talk through my story, you'll hear that I ended up at the Cleveland Clinic Main Hospital. Um, and I was the very first patient that the Cleveland Clinic had saw with COVID-19. Wow. Wow. So, um, when did these, when did the symptoms start to present themselves for you? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a Friday, it was March 6th and I started out the day just like any other day. Um, I had actually gone to lunch with a salesperson that we buy some equipment off of and, you know, everything was kind of status quo. I got to, um, right after lunch and I just started to get a headache. So since it was Friday, I figured, you know, I'd had enough of the week. I was just going to go ahead and head home early. So um, went home a couple hours early that that afternoon, and the uh, the headache unfortunately never went away. It it progressed into a high grade fever at that point, um, and it was actually I had that fever and that headache from Friday until the following Wednesday, and it wasn't until that Wednesday, March 11th, um, you know, I, I woke up and you know my wife and I are talking about potentially going to stat care just because. 
Um, the day before, I kind of felt like I was going to pass out. I didn't pass out, but anytime um, that I kind of get that feeling, I think it's probably good to see the doctor. So, you know, we headed to the local stat care that morning um, and we walked into the stat care. Nobody was there. So we had a pretty quick uh, turnaround before we got into the waiting room. And the, uh, the nurse practitioner listened to my lungs. She did the, the normal, you know, medical history thing and uh, came back and said, you know, I really think you have pneumonia. We're going to go ahead and test you for the flu just to, just to make sure. Uh, but she's like, we'll get you a chest X-ray. We'll get you some steroids and then get you on your way home. Um, and so I, you know, I was fine with that diagnosis. They, uh, they come in with an albuterol treatment, which is pretty standard for pneumonia patients. And as I'm breathing in that albuterol from the face mask, um, I passed out completely right there in the room, um, was, was out for a couple minutes actually. Um, and so the nurse practitioner comes in and, and I wake up to everybody running around the room and, and yelling and, um, she's smacking me on the face and they're throwing cold, wet towels on me. Um, and then when I come to, she tells me that, uh, I just earned myself a trip, uh, with the paramedics to the hospital. They were on their way. So wow. he passed out and he stopped breathing he went gray, like, I mean, full on, cardiac arrest, we're pretty sure, I mean, just the whole symptom. And so I have, um, I have ER experience. So critical care is something I have background. So I open the door and just start yelling at people like, this is what I need. I need this. I need this. I need this. The nurse practitioner was like, she, she's a nurse. We're actually friends with her. She's like, she's a nurse. She's got this. So we're like getting them all ready. And he's like, Oh, I just took a nap. We're like, no, babe, you did not take a nap. And from a nursing perspective, I was monitoring him at home. Um, I can't have the flu shot. I'm allergic to it. So we're very, very careful of when somebody gets sick in the house, we're very careful to isolate. We're very careful about like, you know, hand hygiene, everything like that, just because I can't get it because I can't get the flu shot. So I was checking him. I was checking his pulse socks. I started to notice his color in his skin was going slightly grayish, like an ashy color. And I'm like, something's not right. So we went into the eat or the stat care. I'm like, I need you to check his pulse ox. He's running 91, 92. That's not normal for him. And so that's where she started with, you know, I was pretty sure he had pneumonia as well. It never, ever like COVID wasn't in, we thought we'd be one of the last areas because we're so rural. So I wasn't even concerned about that. I'm just like, it's fine. He's just got pneumonia. You know, I don't know how this happened because it wasn't what I've normally seen with my 15 years of nursing experience. Wow. Wow. Well, first of all, how remarkable is it that Cassie, that you have, you know, that background that that's, and that you had the wherewithal to respond even in that moment of crisis. I mean, there's a lot of people, even with a medical background who would have froze or, you know, been kind of paralyzed, so to speak, by seeing their loved one, you know, reacting to this kind of a, an illness in this way. But I mean, it sounds like that you just zeroed in focus and you began to respond and your training began to take over. That's, that's amazing. What, what was uh, the treatment? Do you know, was the treatment that they, the breathing treatment they put you on right there? Was that, did that start the, um, did that kind of trigger the passing out and what, in the way you responded to that? Yeah, I think so. Cause I mean, I, I have a, actually, I have a, a history of childhood asthma since being an adult, I've kind of grown out of that. So albuterol was something that was familiar to me. 
Um, and so I had been on it before and never experienced passing out, but this time it was different. Like as I'm breathing in the vapor, I just, it, this weird sensation came over my whole body, nothing I'd ever felt before. Um, and I, even at one point I'm breathing it in, I'm looking at her and I'm like, I just don't feel right. And at that point, that's kind of when I just, you know, my head rolled back and hit the wall and, and they took the mask off and, and went right into action. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what happened next? So uh, the squad shows up, uh, they load me into the back of the ambulance and they, we travel to the local Cleveland clinic, um, which just happened to be about six minutes away. Um, so, you know, they roll me up into the emergency room at our, our Cleveland clinic here in town and uh, put us in, uh, you know, a typical emergency room room. And uh, we're sitting there and they're coming in doing the normal stuff that, that they go through when you go to the ER, checking all your vitals and asking you lots of questions. Um, and then they had went away for a little bit. They decided to do a chest X-ray. So they came in, they did the X-ray, um, and you know, they, something on the X-ray didn't look right. So they decided to do a CT scan. So again, they take me out of my room. They take me into the imaging area where they do the CT scan, inject me with the dye, um, and all of that. Now, mind you, you know, again, COVID-19 is not even a thing. So I am now traveling through the hospital with no mask on, no nothing. They're, you know, as if everything is normal. Um, so they bring me back into the ER room and slide the door shut. And we're kind of waiting on the results. Um, and then as we're waiting, we kind of look out because the, the doors are all glass. So we can see into the ER, like the, the clinical area. And we notice that things are starting to get a little chaotic in that area. People are running around. Uh, there's chaos. Um, somebody walks up to the door that I am, uh, to the room that I am in, and they kind of push it shut to make sure it's sealed nice and tight. And we both look at each other and I'm like, something is going on. No idea what it is, not knowing that it was us. A um, few minutes later, you know, we're witnessing the doctors, the nurses putting on full PPE, the gowns, the, the face masks, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. And then they finally slide open the door uh, to come in and, and let us know that the CT scan showed uh, ground glass opacities, which they are seeing that in other COVID-19 patients. So while they haven't given me the formal diagnosis at this point, um, they're still proceeding with the, the plan of care around pneumonia. They, they think that that could be a possibility. Um, and so at that point, they swabbed me the first time for COVID-19. Um, and then, you know, as they're watching things go, uh, as far as numbers, oxygen, stuff like that, um, they decide at that point, it's probably best to admit me. So they make the decision decision of me into an isolation room at the ICU. Immediately, um, I went into nurse advocation role. I'm like, this is something within my control. I thought they caught the COVID crazy train. Mm -hmm. They could just come on at two. Nick got his CT scan at 2.30. So I'm like, you all have just lost your mind. Why don't we check for lactic acid levels, which is a sign of sepsis? We need to be checking his sputum. Like I started listing all the things because I have, again, 15 years of nursing experience in oncology, hematology, infectious disease, like the whole plethora I have. So I'm just, I'm, I'm asking for orders on stuff. And so for him, he's sitting there and he's like, whatever she says, like you do. And so it never occurred to me that past this point, I wouldn't be in the room with him. 
we, we were just like, what is going on? You all have lost your minds. Wow. I was, I was curious, Cassie. I mean, you just started articulating some of it, but you know, my wife's a PA. And so, um, unfortunately she knows too much, right? It's one of those things where (laughs) ignorance is bliss, but when you're trained medically, you know, of all the possibilities that this could be. And, um, and yet COVID-19, especially at this state in the game was something that nobody knew anything about. It was so unknown, so mysterious. I, I was just curious as to how, you know, when you began, and maybe you'll get this in, in the storyline, but when did you, Cassie, begin to look at this and go, okay, this is, this is serious. Like this is, there, there's something really going on here. So I think all along, I'm like, there's something not right because this isn't normal for Nick. This isn't normal for flu symptoms. Like in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is not normal, but I had, I'm not an uneducated nurse. So when I flew in January to California, to our grad school, I had already done my research on COVID-19. I'd already done my stuff of what to look for, how to travel safe, like all of that, just because I'm like, even though it's not a big deal for me, I work in healthcare. So I want to be very careful about, you know, all of that. But I was taking serious. Um, and so when we started in this, like when he was finally diagnosed, that's when I really started going into ICU chat rooms. Um, and we'll get into that. But yeah, I really went digging to try to really advocate for him because nobody, I mean, you've got to remember, China was it at that point and Italy was drowning and nobody knew how to do anything. So like the only way that I was getting information was through these doctors in the ICU chat rooms on Facebook that were saying, do this, do this, do this. Here's something I made. This is what's working here. And I mean, we were just getting hit across the board in March. I mean, and the news didn't even cover it to the extent of what we were seeing from the healthcare perspective. Right. Well, I mean, my family, we were at Disney World literally the last week of February, you know? So leading right up to this, we're in one of the most jam-packed, saturated places there could be. And you're right. It just wasn't on our radar in the United States. We didn't even think it was going to be, uh, you know, it's something that was going to be super severe here. So, okay. So they swab you for the first time. You're seeing all of this mayhem happen around you. They're making sure already that you are completely shut off from the rest of the hospital. Talk to me what happens next. So, uh, the first couple of days in the ICU, like I said, uneventful to me, at least, um, obviously oxygen levels were still a concern. They were, um, slowly putting me on some light oxygen. The first couple days in ICU, I was actually working. I had asked for my laptop and somebody had brought it up and I was trying to get some stuff done, emails, things like that. Um, and it wasn't until we progressed into, uh, Friday and Saturday into the weekend did I have my oxygen levels were so low that I had gone, you know, in and out of consciousness. Um, I remember parts of that where, you know, I remember the nurse coming in and he was telling me that they're really struggling keeping my oxygen up. So they wanted to put me on a CPAP machine. Um, and I remember agreeing to that. I remember them bringing the machine in and I remember, uh, being on that machine for some time, uh, until they came in. And I remember them asking me, uh, you know, about the Cleveland Clinic main campus and them reaching out because they really didn't want me on a a CPAP machine long-term, that it wasn't safe and uh, that they were going to ventilate me. Um, And from that point on, I don't really remember a whole lot of the next couple of days um, because they reached out more to her to get approval on that kind of stuff. Uh, But they did end up intubating me, putting me on a ventilator. 
Um, and then I was at the, the Dover uh, hospital for, I believe, two days on the ventilator. During that unethical time where he was checking emails and doing all that stuff, I was busy talking to city officials that didn't want us to say where we were from. I was busy talking to health department, um, my kids trying to explain to them, hey, listen, um, you guys can't go to your friend's house. You can't go play. Um, and then also dealing with, um, you know, the health department of we were I was quarantined. Um, the girls were quarantined. Um, they were, I was already aware of all the steps that had to happen, but just really navigating, trying to keep people calm because it got out on, we're such a small community. It got out on social media that there was a potential COVID case in, um, at the Dover campus. And so there was more news about it on social media before my parents even knew what was going on. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to navigate all that. The nurses and the doctors um, I only yelled at one nurse um, and it wasn't his fault and he was super gracious and he just gently apologized by all of them because I am a nurse. I actually worked for the, I work for the Cleveland clinic right now in their home care unit. Um, they were just so gracious. The ICU manager gave me her phone number. I could call her day and night. Um, I didn't realize the severity until March 14th when I started to notice he was on he went from two liters of oxygen up to five liters of oxygen. Um, and then what we found out was day um, nine to 10 are the worst days. If somebody's going to go on a ventilator and they're, they're tracking, that's when they're going to go on. And so that's what happened to him. He went from, you know, just on Saturday, okay, it's for sure COVID. Like he's the first health department called me, said, we're going at 2 p.m. We're going live. We will not let your information leak. Um, I got special permission to send our daughters to a farm because I was really concerned with the community and just the response and the anger. And, you know, I was concerned for our children's safety. So I sent them out to a 90 acre farm, a friend of ours, they decided to quarantine with our children. Um, and so I was at home by myself, um, just trying to navigate the chaos and just over and over saying, you know, this can't be happening. This, this can't be happening. Um, and then, you know, Sunday, I just woke up and I just heard the Lord say, you need to prepare yourself. Um, and I knew that they were going to ventilate him before he did. I just knew with where we were tracking and where we were heading, because I know too much, I knew they were going to ventilate him. So the health department gave me special permission because I was already, um, I showed no symptoms. Um, the ICU manager, I, I, I just bawled. I'm like, I'll do ev whatever you want. Just let me see my husband. Like, just let me see him because they didn't think he was going to make it. Um, he just was tracking downhill so fast. So they gave me special permission to come into the hospital. They gave me an N95 mask, full PPE before I ever walked in. They took me the back doors. They took me up to his room. And, um, you know, he doesn't remember, but my first time I left my husband on a Wednesday, that was the last time I saw him. And the first time I saw him again, he's fully ventilated, um, and just completely not there. Wow. Um, and I just remember calling his mom and I mean, I'm advocating so hard, advocating so hard. And just remember calling her and I said, you need to see this. You need to see, I need you to understand the severity of what's going on here because I'm not the nurse anymore. I'm, I'm the wife now. Uh, there's nothing I can do. They're taking him to Cleveland, like literally. Um, and they zipped him up. I sat with him. I prayed over him from top to bottom. Like every single thing I could think from a medical perspective, I prayed over. I prayed over his liver. I prayed over his kidneys. I prayed over his lungs. 
um, just top to bottom, just prayed and had worship music for about four hours before they took him from me. And they zipped him up in a body bag um, when they took him because they had to keep him fully, fully closed. So I, I walked out um, with my husband on a ventilator, zipped up in a body bag, and he left the Dover location. And that was the last time I saw him for about 12 days. And I sat in my car after the nurses broke protocol and hugged me while I cried. Um, and I remember calling my mom and saying, I just need you to pray. And she said, Cassie, I believe that God is elevating you to a new level. And I told her, I said, mom, I don't really care about elevation. I just want my husband. Wow. <laughs> so for me, it was just, it was a huge four o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. I'm like, Lord, I have, I have nothing. Cause I never thought we would be here. So I remember, you know, Monday morning, six 30, I get home and they call and they're like, you know, he's not doing good. We can't give you any hope. Um, what do you want done if he codes? And I remember telling the doctor, fully exhausted, I said, that is my best friend. You give him back to me. I don't care what you have to do. You give him back to me. And, um, you know, from this point, he's out. They're like, you know, we're going to wake him up. We're going to see where he is. We did take him off the paralytic in the sedation. And he is alert. He's able to say, you know, nod yes and no, but we're going to keep him on. And so I just remember calling the global church and just, at this point, I didn't care who knew. I just wanted every crazy believer that believed in healing to pray for my husband. Yeah. And so at 630 in the morning, I, I began to call everybody and anybody I knew I didn't care. I, I didn't care anymore. I'm like, I just need you to pray because we need a miracle. Like this is the doctors don't know what to do. They don't know how to treat this. They're telling me there's no hope. Like I need you to pray. And I remember the Lord just speaking and saying, Cassie, my hand is on you and Nick. You got to the stat care. He passed out. He ended up in the hospital. He ended up in the ICU. He is at Cleveland Clinic. My hand is here. I am here with you. And so even in the midst, and people would call like in those moments and just begin to speak scripture over us and to pray for us and like over the phone, speak faith. Um, and Nick's parents, you know, huge part of that story. Um, and, you know, from that perspective, just my faith, I felt like my well went dry and I felt like just across the board, um, you know, the Propel cohort women just called me, you know, constantly. Are you OK? The health department women called. Are you eating like women? Across, I don't even know showed up to bring me food. When pain comes into our lives, it's easy to want to avoid it, bury it, or run away from it. But if you've listened to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast for any amount of time, you would know that none of these approaches to dealing with pain actually end in purpose. Most of our guests have gone through long healing journeys that oftentimes involve counseling, which is why we've partnered with an incredible online worldwide organization called Faithful Counseling who provides virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board. If you're seeking traditional mental health counseling but would prefer hearing from a Christian perspective, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Once you're matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone, through video calls, phone calls, or even text messaging. 
They also have weekly Groupinar sessions where members can learn in a group environment with a counselor. Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource in your healing journey. It costs $65 per week, and financial aid is available to those who qualify, which you can apply for during the sign-up process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothingiswasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of the Nothing Is Wasted family. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash nothingiswasted. Now, back to our interview. Man, Cassie, that's, um, it's an overwhelming amount of emotion to manage in the midst of those, you know, 36, 72 hours right there. I mean, not only is the obvious of watching, like what you just said, watching your husband zipped up in a body bag, taken, you know, um, out of the hospital and you're not seeing him for 12 days, which we'll get into in a second. I want to hear how those 12 days went and the, the, the journey the Lord had you on specifically, Cassie, but also having to manage, you know, the mayhem of just the, the fear that was taking place in the community around you and your children being thrust in the midst of that. And I mean, that just, it's just a lot. It's a lot. I know you've already talked about a couple of moments where you felt like the Lord showed up and just whispered into your soul during those times. But you know, the next 12 days where you're not able to see him, where was God in that for you? Um, I think for me, like the blessings I had written out, I kept a prayer journal, which is where um, a lot of the, like the, a lot of the information when it came home, we went through everything. So I kept a journal of everything um, just of like what I was feeling. And I just remember being in a time I'm supposed to be so isolated. I have never felt the love of God so tangible than I did in those moments. And I never felt the love of his church so much in those moments. Um, and just um, the, the people that we don't even know to this day that, you know, sent us stuff, sent us food, um, would pr- call us to say, we're praying for you. One woman brought me a meal and I don't, I still to this day don't know who she is. And she dropped it off. And I stood on my porch um, because through in the home, Nick had an ICU window, but in the house, I didn't open the door unless people were far, far enough away because we didn't know enough about the virus. And even though I was asymptomatic, I wasn't taking the chance with anybody. And she stood in the road and I said, thank you. And she bawled with me and just said, I wish I could do more. And we just cried together. And I'm like, that's what the church is. Um, I think for me, just because we have walked such a broken road with um, our local church. We were actually in a place where, you know, we had left our church and we were just kind of in limbo. And, you know, I was really wrestling with that. And really for me, God healed my understanding of what the church was and the power of the church. And just the fact that people that I still to this day don't know. um, And then, you know, just that God would speak. So every single day, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would wake up every morning and say, it's a good day for a miracle. 
Um, and I would just say that out loud because I needed to remind myself. I needed to stand on God's word because my fear could take over and it was still present. Yeah. Like I knew everything they were doing to him. I knew everything that was going on with being ventilated and the NG tube and like the medical side of everything he's walking through. I already knew what was going on. And that was, you know, a full on attack of right. the enemy, I believe. Right. But just being able to stand and say, but my, my God says, yeah. that he has called us to blessing um, and that Nick will live and not die. Like that was something we had three prophetic words given to us at that time. Three people. One was in San Francisco. I don't know. Um, one was Nick's cousin and one was our daughter. Um, and one called and said, you know, I just keep hearing the Lord say that in the same way that Lazarus lived, Nick is going to live. And I'm like, I, I, for me, I need threes. Like if it's a prophetic word, I believe God, you know, that's just for me personally. And then Nick's cousin called and he's like, Cassie, I was praying for Nick. And I just heard the Lord say in the same way that I love Lazarus, I love Nicholas and he won't die. Um, and then Katie came home, we're three days in. And, um, you know, I brought the girls home once I was sure we were safe and everything. And uh, Katie was helping put away groceries that somebody brought. And she, that's our 12 year old. And she goes, mom, I think that if God can heal that one guy and raise him from the dead, he can, he can heal daddy. And I'm like, what one guy I want wow. you to say, <laughs> say his name. Hey, and she's like, that's, it was, that's good. Cause Jesus said his name, right? Yep. And she Jesus said, said his mom, name. And that's what, yep. Lazarus, come on. And she said it's Lazarus. Hmm. And she's like that Lazarus one. And I'm like, wow. okay, so like three prophetic words that in the same way that God loved Lazarus, he loved Nick, but mm. on day one, and people like the end of our story and I'll let him talk. Um, but on that Monday, I remember sitting on our bed with scripture and my Bible open and feeling devastated. But I told the Lord, I said, live or die, you have us live or die. You've got us. So if Nick lives, I know that you've got us. If Nick not dies, I know that you're going to be with him in that hospital. And I know you've got us. So it wasn't a place of where I was determined my husband was going to live. It was a place of total surrender of saying, live or die, you have us. You take us and you do whatever you want with us because we are yours. Wow. And like that, I think is so important in our story because a lot of people like to skip to the end of it, that he's here and yeah. what God did was so amazing. But in that moment, I chose to stand and say, he's yours. That's right. Like I have to trust you regardless. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's such a good point, Cassie, that everyone's trying to look for the miracle in the story. They're looking to the end of it. They're kind of wanting to see the the resurrection. But I think the power of each of our stories is in those rock bottom moments, those crossroads moments where we have an opportunity to to choose to say yes to the invitation that Jesus is is extending to us. And in this case, the, the invitation was, Do you trust me no matter what? Do you trust me no matter what? I've, I've been faithful to you up to this point. Do you trust uh, your husband's life in my hands? Because he's, he's mine anyways, right? And that's, but that's something, that's a realization that you had to really come to. And I think that is the power of each one of our stories is those moments right there. And I love the fact that, that God showed up f for you in prophetic words. We don't talk a whole lot about that on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. There might be somebody listening to this right now and might feel that that's a little bit that could be a little bit weird. Maybe you're not a believer. You're not understanding it. But I, there, I had a few moments like that in, in my story too, where um, there was some, some prophetic words spoken over me or to me 
that after my wife's death made a lot of sense. And all it did was show me that God is in it and that he's meeting me in my darkest moment. And that he's got not, not only was he in the details uh, leading up to it, but he's also in the details going forward. So no matter what happens, he's going to be with me and he's going to direct me. He's going to guide me. And that's the promise. The promise is the presence. And that's, that's, I mean, that's the promise. And so no matter what, God is still my God, whether Nick is here or not. And I think that's the testimony of what, do you trust his sovereignty? Do you trust that God is a good God that no matter what he's with you like that, I hope is in our story. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Okay. Nick, I I do want to get to kind of, you know, your side when things begin to turn around for you, but with, without, I know, I know it's, I know there's uh, this could be sensitive Cassie, but you mentioned something that I'm really curious about because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have had similar experiences, but one of the things you said was something to the effect of you, you walked a broken road with your church and this experience kind of reinstated for you, the power of the church. Can you, obviously I know you don't want to get into the, the details of those things because those are sensitive topics and stuff, but can you maybe articulate for me what you, because of the broken road you were walking with, with your church, what you believed about the church? Like what was the false beliefs that began to the false narratives, the stories that the enemy was trying to play over in your heart about the church? And then, and then how was that replaced? What was the truth that replaced those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll let you jump into, cause I think it was the same for a little bit, the same for you too. Um, but I know for me, um, Nick and I had been a part of a church plant and we were like, we came in very young. Um, and I, about three years in, I just had some fallout with the leadership and, um, a a word was spoken over me that I don't think was done on purpose or anything like that, but I will never forget sitting in the room and having a leader in the church tell me that due to my past and personality, I could never be a leader. And I knew that God called me to ministry Um, and just the devastation of two things that I couldn't change my past and my personality. Um, and then just walking in that church of, uh, they really loved my husband for his gifts and talents and abilities. Um, and that's how I perceived it, but they didn't want me. And so it was that off cast where I walked in every single Sunday and was alone. Um, people, you know, would come and say, you know, we're, we're not allowed to, we're allowed to talk to Nick. We're not allowed to talk to you. We want to be on the leadership in this church. Like just a lot of very, very deeply hurtful things that I endured. And I prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, keep going. And so for three years, I, I took a year off and just kept trying to make it work. And so by the end of it, I just told the Lord, like, I don't know what your church looks like, but this isn't it. Like, this isn't it. And so I, um, I transitioned out. I I told my husband, I'm like, I love you. And I choose our marriage over a church. Um, and, and I don't think, I don't think it was done maliciously or anything. And I want to honor those people because I would never want that. But for me, it just, it hurts so deeply. Um, and it wounded my belonging. I actually had to go to therapy, which I would suggest to people that have been hurt in the church. Um, after all of this with, um, one, the growth and just seeing God's love, seeing people meet us in the midst of our needs. Like they didn't ask for anything. They weren't trying to get anything from us. They didn't care that my husband was talented. They didn't care. Like they got nothing from helping us and they still showed up and they showed up to give us faith. Like they gave 
when we could give nothing. And I think for me, that was church. How I saw it was a business essentially. um, And just a platform that needed to be built. And what I found in this season was the church is the greatest movement of love and generosity um, and God's presence and obedience. And when you're linked into that, that's powerful. And so for me, that was, you know, it wasn't about my doing. It was about just being a relationship with other believers and not trying to figure out or self-protect or anything like that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Nick, do you have anything that you, you want to speak to that? I know in the midst of all of this, you were, you know, in and out of consciousness and not really totally aware, but yeah, I was actually um, only on the paralytic uh, until I had gotten to the Cleveland clinic main campus. So the entire time I was ventilated in ICU, um, I was actually awake uh, for the whole, um, so, you know, I, I think the first few days it was uh, a struggle, you know, I wake up and I'm in a completely different place. I'm not sure how I got there. Um, this was that Monday that I had just shown up at Cleveland clinic. And so, you know, right away, the nurses are recognizing I'm kind of becoming coherent again. They rush in to, to kind of tell me what's going on. Uh, you know, how I got there, those types of things, you know, they never really tell you at that point, kind of what your status is, you know, they're, they really don't want to get you all worked up. So they're not about to tell you, you know, whether you're going to make it, whether you're not going to make it. Um, but I've never really been sick before. So I've, you know, never been in the hospital. Um, so I'm, this is brand new for me. I'm laying in an ICU. Um, it's an isolated ICU. So the rooms are very, very tiny. Um, it's just big enough for a bed and all the IVs that sit next to you. And so here I am in this room. Um, there's sliding glass doors that that kind of secure everything because it's a it's a zero pressure room. So, you know, all the air stays within that room. Um, and the nursing staff tell me that, you know, there's a shortage of PPE, so they're not going to be in and out a lot. So if I need something, I'm going to have to use my call button, um, those types of things. And so you you spend a lot of time alone. Um, which is one of the big struggles with this virus. I mean, you're you're in an isolation ICU room, and you have no visitors. You have very few, uh, very little contact with your nurses. Uh, the doctors, as a matter of fact, never ever step foot into your room. Um, all of my doctor visits occurred, you know, talking through the glass doors or calling me on my cell phone and talking to me. Uh, through, wow. through, through the cell phone. And so here I am, I'm, you know, I'm in this new place and, um, it, it was a struggle, uh, especially for the first few days. I had a, a lot of depression and anxiety, which are not two emotions that I typically deal with. Um, so, you know, progressing through those first couple of days, I, I had a lot of ups and downs. I had issues with blood pressure, um, you know, oxygen issues. So I was going in and out, falling asleep a lot, waking up a lot. Um, I had gotten to the point where my days and my nights were completely mixed up. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm waking up for the day at, you know, one or two in the morning and sleeping at maybe six or seven in the evening. Um, and all of that kind of takes a toll on you. Uh, and then on top of all of that, they have experimental drugs that they have in me because, you know, when we talk about the drugs that are in the news now, things like randesivir and uh, hydrochloroquine, those are all things that were tried on me in the early stages. And so, you know, I've got these medications in me. Um, I've got 
medications to help me sleep, uh, and, and all of that stuff kind of has an adverse effect. And so, um, the first few days I'm having these insane hallucinations. Um, I, you know, people might say they're, they're nightmares, but I was not asleep during them. Um, and I, I remember all of them very vividly. And, you know, one of them, <clears throat> I remember the one night I'm laying there and, it's almost like they have put me in this kind of internment camp and there's things floating in the air and I see people moving around and, and I even, I texted her cause I had gotten my cell phone by that point. Um, and I'm texting her and I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm at the Cleveland clinic anymore. I think they've transported me somewhere else and, you know, harvesting organs or something. Um, but I just felt very not where I belong. And so, you know, she's texting me kind of reiterating, you know, you're where you're supposed to be. And, wow. um, I'm even opening my, my maps app on my phone to make sure the GPS says I'm at Cleveland clinic. And, um, you know, that was, that wow. was the biggest struggle with this whole thing, uh, was every, every single day, night, whatever, whatever it turned out to be, um, just these awful hallucinations and dreams and they were reoccurring. Um, and they were to the point where like, you know, one, one that I had, uh, very often was that they were putting me, they were taking me out of my ICU room and putting me in a completely different room. Um, and then leaving me there, just forgetting about me completely. And I could see a door with this little tiny window and I could see into the lobby and everybody was just kind of going about their life. Um, and here I am just kind of laying in bed with this tube in my mouth and I can't do anything, um, or go anywhere. And so, you know, that had progressed a couple of days dealing with those. And I had gotten to the point where I just didn't, I didn't know that I had, if I had it within me to, to continue like this. Mm. Um, I didn't know, you know, what this looked like long-term, um, if I was ever going to get off a ventilator again. Um, and so I really started to wrestle and I, I, at one point, um, they had given me some paper and a, a marker because that was the only way I could communicate with my nursing staff. And uh, I, I remember that night I had contemplated writing on the paper um, just to pull the plug. Mm. And I really wanted to show that to them. Um, and I, I really struggled at that point because, and just to give you a little bit of a background. So I've been, uh, you know, a, a Christian all of my life. My parents, uh, my dad's a minister. Um, he's been a minister for as long as I can remember in various churches. And so I've grown up as a Christian, grown up um, in that environment. You know, I could recite all the stories of the Bible and, and sing all the contemporary music. Um, but, you know, like she had alluded to at our last church and through a couple of church fallings out, falling out as an adult, you know, I had kind of gotten to that same place. I was, I was to the point where the church was consuming so much of my time that I was working between my job and the church 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Wow. Um, and so I had actually taken a break for about a year from church as well prior to this event. And so I really, you know, not that I walked away from God, but it, it definitely was not the, the first and foremost thing in my life at this point. And so I'm laying here with these thoughts, depression, anxiety, um, asking them to pull the plug. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't even know that I can turn to God at this point. Mm. But there was just something within me that I began, I, I, I can't pray at this point because I have a tube, but I'm, I'm thinking through these prayers and it begins to come out of me in moans. And, you know, I'm, I'm praying these thoughts in my mind and I, I'll never forget what happens next. You know, people talk about the peace of God, 
But until you actually experience it, you have no idea what it's like. And here I am laying in a bed with a ventilator in my mouth, and I feel the overwhelming peace of God just kind of rush into that room. And I feel him in that room with me, and I hear him say to me that he has got this, that he is using the the hands of these nurses and this medical team to take care of me. And, you know, I, I still at this point have no idea what the outcome of this is going to be, but I, I at least resolve within myself that he's got this, um, that I'm just going to kind of leave this up to him and, and see what happens. And so um, I'd like to say that I had a, an immediate healing that night, um, and I didn't from a physical standpoint, but I certainly did from a spiritual standpoint. Um, you know, the next few days I continued, you know, kind of uphill, downhill on things. Um, they would reach out to my wife and, you know, things continued, blood pressure issues. Um, you know, at one point they thought maybe my kidney and liver was going to fail. Um, and then, you know, we started to get to the point, they talk a lot on the news about the cytokine storm. Um, if you're familiar with that term, it's basically when, you know, your immune system kind of kicks into overdrive and it starts attacking your own organs. Um, and so I got to the point where they were really scared that that, that was going to happen. Um, and when the cytokine storm kicks in, the mortality rate goes up significantly. A lot of people don't survive the cytokine storm. But I was fortunate that um, through, you know, the medical team that we had there, uh, they were able to keep things under control, get my blood pressure where it needed to go. Um, and, you know, about the Thursday or Friday of that week, uh, things started to turn around and I started to... Wow the improvements. Um, the doctors would make their rounds every morning and I had gotten to the point where I had energy. I was communicating with them. Uh, I was making them laugh. They were making me laugh. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget the day when the, the doctor, my pulmonologist came around and he's talking to me on the cell phone. We're kind of doing rounds that way. Um, and then, you know, they would communicate with me through the glass window that was in the ICU door. And they would, they had a Sharpie that they would write on the window, different things, um, blood pressure, goals, stuff like that. And uh, I'll never forget that morning as he's doing his rounds, he writes on the glass window, we will get you home. And at that moment, I kind of knew that I was at least on the uphill side of this thing or the downhill side of this thing rather. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they, they continued to push me to try and get me to breathe. Um, there's certain things like uh, when you're talking about lungs, there's a, 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 it's called PEEP, that your PEEP has to be a certain level um, and all of those things. And so I was, I was making a concerted effort to do those things that they were asking me to do. Mm. Wow. And in the, in the midst of this, we were Facebook. We had uh, FaceTime with, between Nick's parents and I and like, I mean, it was ups and downs. It was ups and downs. So there would be times he would call us. And I just, I learned to look at the, this part of his head. So if it was crinkled, he was upset. If it was relaxed, he was okay. And so we would just like, when he'd call, like one of us would start and just start praying. And like Nick's dad, I'll never forget the one day he called, they put the news on in his room and he called and he was upset. And like my mother-in-law went and grabbed my father-in-law and said you will not die you have been a good son he's like the word says a son you know that honors his father and mother will live a long life so you will not die you will live and like his I mean it was such a from a wife's perspective like to watch a father speak life into his son 
Yeah. In in the midst of, I mean, he would go upstairs and shut himself into his room and pray. And I did the same. Like I would go up and shut myself up into my room and pray. Like we just really sought the Lord and we would just speak life into him when he didn't have life. We're like, okay, it's our turn. Like we're going to start speaking life into you. We stayed on the phone with him as often as he would call us, we would be on the phone with him. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. You're, you're in these moments where you literally cannot do anything. You are at the mercy of uh, seemingly all the hands that are attending to you that are helping you, but really it's, it's, it's the Lord, you know, and you're, you're, you're calling out and you're, you're begging him, Lord, you've got to show up. You've got to show up. Wow. The hallucination thing, I had not heard of that before. Did, were there, have we heard any other folks who have experienced that? Is that something that is pretty common uh, in the state that you were in? Yeah, it is. It's actually got a, a term called ICU delirium. Wow. Wow. And I'm sure that, you know, would then contribute to your, the anxiety and the, mm-hmm. wow. Okay. So you get onto the, I love how you said the, the, the downhill or the uphill of this. It just depends on how you want to look at it. You get on the uphill. Mm-hmm. When, when did, was it finally? Okay. There, like we're yeah, going to so, make this. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it's kind of funny the, the, the one night before, um, you know, kind of, I, I, call my miracle night, um, was probably my roughest night of the hallucinations. And yeah. I'd gotten to the point where I had just not slept. Uh, it's very difficult to sleep in a hospital anyway. And then you've got right. all the other things going on. Um, and so, you know, my afternoon nurse had come in and I, you know, my nursing staff, I absolutely loved. We, I, there were a few of them I connected with really well. And, and, uh, you know, they, they were, they were amazing people and she comes in and I've got a note and we're kind of going through, you know, kind of the normal stuff we do when they come on shift. And, and I asked if there was any way she could get an order for something to help me sleep. Like I want to be knocked out. Um, I don't, I, I want it to be, you know, so effective that I'm not even dreaming or having <laughs> hallucination. And, uh, she, she came back a couple hours early and she's like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I talked to the doctor and we're going to get you something to help you sleep tonight. So I was all excited for that (laughs) night. Unfortunately, it was a bad night for the nursing staff. Mm. Um, there some things had happened that night and my evening nurse had come in and just kind of checked in with me and said, Hey, I've got your medication, but I'll be back to give it to you in a little bit. Things kind of exploded in the ICU that evening, and she did not come back in until much, much later that night. Um, And so she comes in, and she gives me the medication. It's probably close to midnight at this point. And so uh, I remember her kind of doing her thing and then giving me the medication and leaving, um, going on to the next patient. And I I kind of dozed off that night. And uh, unfortunately, whatever they gave me didn't really stop the hallucinations. And so you know, that was a night where I had that same reoccurring dream where I'm being left essentially to fend for myself and, um, you know, really struggled that night. I started thrashing in the bed because I'm not really asleep. Um, and they kind of check on me to make sure what's going on, but there's not a whole lot they can do at this point. So, you know, I continued for a a better part of the night, um, just kind of thrashing around in my bed and, and, and dealing with that hallucination. And I, I recall actually falling asleep at some point and I'm laying there in pitch black. Uh, and I remember hearing 
um, a voice that that night. And it says, get out of bed. You will not die here. Mm. And I immediately woke up and I am sitting straight up in the bed and the ventilator tube is half hanging out of my mouth. And I can see out the ICU window, my entire nursing staff is looking back at me in just absolute horror as to what has just happened. And they run in and they're, you know, they're freaking out. I've got this ventilator that is hanging out of my mouth. It's not supposed to be there. Um, I'm actually projectile vomiting also. And so they're dealing with that. And, uh, you know, they, they go ahead and finish taking out the tube. Um, kind of put me under and finish doing what they need to do to, you know, uh, extubate somebody. And then, you know, they took me off of whatever that was. I, I'm awake and I'm alert at this point and I'm sitting there, uh, with no tube in my mouth and breathing on my own. Mm. And the nurse comes in to check on me after I come back out of, of, uh, you know, that sedation. And I'm like, what, what's, what do we do now? I mean, I, I've never been in this situation. Jeez. What's the next step? And she's like, well, we don't know. We weren't going to extubate you. Uh, you weren't ready yet. And so we're just going to play it by ear and, and go the next couple of hours and see what happens. Um, and so I'm like, okay, can I get a glass of water? Because <laughs> let me tell you, I had not had anything to drink, uh, water, ice, anything like that, uh, for a, you know a week now. And so I was thirsty uh, and craving water. And unfortunately, she's like, well, I can give you a little bit of ice, um, but we really can't give you a whole lot. And we're going to see how this goes. And, um, you know, the miraculous thing about this is about four hours later, it's now lunchtime. And they wheel into my room a full-blown hospital meal. And they get me out of the bed and I'm sitting in a recliner. So, you know, within the span of a few hours, I am now eating a full course hospital meal, um, sitting in a chair watching TV. And, you know, everybody who I talk to in the medical field tells me that that's unheard of. Wow. Yeah. The doctors say he coughed the tube out. They don't, they said he did not pull it out. They said he coughed it out, which means his, his lungs healed spontaneously enough that it pushed the tube out. Jeez. Well, I mean, you mentioned Lazarus earlier in this, this, I mean, that sounds just like the scene that we read in scripture, mm-hmm. you know, very close. And even Jesus telling Mary and Martha, Hey, this isn't going to end in death. And this voice that you hear, that's like, Hey, you're not dying here. Let's mm-hmm. go. You know? Wow. Wow. Well, and I mean, literally I called the nurses. I'm like, did he pull it out? Like, tell me the truth. Did he pull it out? And then one nurse told me no, because he would have ruptured his esophagus yeah. had he have pulled it out. Like, so, I mean, like from, I went nurse mode first before I'm like, yes, it's a miracle. I'm like, I want to know from a medical perspective, like, you know, but I mean, he came out of that. We both came out completely changed, but the two things he said, we were, there were three he wanted to do, but he knew he needed to write a thank you note on the ICU window um, because it was going to get worse. And so he wanted to give hope to the nursing staff. Um, And the second was to write a book. Mm. Yeah. Let's continue that, that conversation. I mean, you're looking back on all of this experience now and you're seeing it in retrospect. Uh, you're seeing what the Lord has done both in you and through you. I mean, what, 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 what would you, how would you qualify that? This is, this is what we kind of took out of this. Uh, as we look back on it, this is kind of the, 
the story that we're telling ourselves now of God's goodness and faithfulness. This is what he's reminding us of. My kids have a huge uh, ego theologically. Um, they're like, God raised my dad from the dead. God can do anything. Um, but from that perspective, it has grown their faith. But just to see, for people to see us, one, um, you know, seeing him come home and the letter on the ICU window he did, it went viral all over social media. Um, and like, just to listen to him tell the Washington Post about what Jesus did for him and to NBC and ABC and Dr. Oz and like that his story didn't change based on who he was talking to, like the faithfulness of what God did um, in this from a wife perspective of just like, here we are. This is what God, we serve a God. Why are we surprised? This is what he does. This is what God does. Why are we surprised when he actually does it? Well, I mean, you know, it's just like God to, um, to create a, to create a story like this, that's able to put up as a beacon of hope and a beacon of light in the midst of a, a crazy pandemic that we've not gone through in the midst of pandemonium that has ensued because of it to remind us that he is in control, that he's got this and that he can be trusted and he's going to walk with us through every, every valley and in in the deepest and darkest of valleys that we can imagine. I, I mean, one of the other things that's been impactful for me is, you know, I never knew writing that that letter on the ICU glass would have uh, the reach that it has had. Mm. And, you know, even today, I still have people who will run into a family member of mine and they'll find out they're related to me. And maybe they had, you know, a brother or a sister who works in a hospital somewhere and they'll just start to tell them how impactful that, that note was and how encouraging it was to them in, in this season. And so, you know, and that's, and that's why I do these types of things is because I made a pact with God during this process that as long as his breath was in my lungs, I would proclaim his, his glory. And so, you know, that, that's the whole reason I do this. I want people to know that, that there is a loving God and that he is always there. He is, you know, his promises, uh, he promises to always be with us and, and that all of that is true. And, and, you know, prior to this event, you know, like I said, being a Christian all of my life, until you experience the supernatural love and power of God, it's, it can be difficult to connect with, especially, you know, I am an introvert by nature. I'm an IT guy. I'd much rather sit in the, sit at a desk with the door closed and not talking to people. Um, and so I think, I think that just goes along to prove the power that, that God has and the, the story that he can put in us, uh, and then use for his glory. Yeah. Yeah. And even that you don't see it as one of your strengths, but he's going to use what you would see as a weakness to make his strength perfect and make his mm -hmm. story known. That's so, wow. That's so amazing. Oh man. I, um, I'm so encouraged by this because, you know, and, and, and our listeners are going to be encouraged too, because there are so many stories that we hear that it's, it's hardship, it's tragedy. And a lot of it, I mean, a lot of the stories we hear, they do end in death, at least, you know, in the, in the natural, in the material world right now. But, um, the hope that we hold on to then is right. That we don't, that, that we have a different, our home is in a different place and we're, we have a different perspective. We don't grieve as those who have no hope, but your story is one that allows us to hold on to the hope of healing here and now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that God still heals 
that he still intervenes, that he still jumps into our situation. And, and like you said, he will, he will put breath back into our lungs so that we can move forward with a purpose to proclaim the goodness of his glory. And, and that's just so encouraging to me. And that's what I want the listener to hear from your story is God, he, he wasn't just a healer back in scripture, back in the old Testament, new Testament. Jesus wasn't just a healer as he's walking the streets of Jerusalem and he's teaching by the sea of Galilee. No, no, no. He still heals. And I love that you're proclaiming this message. I love that you are um, getting put into opportunities where you can do it on national platforms. Uh, and you can kind of <laughs> cause Dr. Oz to be bewildered. Who's going, I don't understand this from a medical perspective. Of course you don't mm-hmm. because it's Jesus. <laughs> yep. Man, that's so awesome. Is there anything that you would like to encourage people with as we close? Um, I think the thing is like, you know, we are, I was just thinking about this today, like from the church perspective, the Nicene Creed is that we are one. Mm. And when the church is unified, like God can do so many things. Like we're holy. Yeah. We're, you know, the universal church, the Catholic universal, and we're, we believe in the scriptures. Like, and I think I was thinking about that today. I'm like, you know, the church is unstoppable when it's unified right. and it doesn't matter. Uniformity is not the same as being unified. And mm-hmm. so it, it doesn't matter where our, like we're rural Tuscarawas County. Like we are nobodies on the grand scheme of things. We are nobodies and we're fully aware of that, but God chose to use us yeah. and we want to proclaim his kingdom, his glory and his hope. And like, what I would encourage people is, you know, God is with you in your isolation. It doesn't even matter if you have a vet tube down your throat. If you think it, God will meet you there. And so I would encourage people to grow their faith rather than their fear, shut off the news, shut off social media, and just begin to proclaim and find out who this God is. Because without God, there's no hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. I just like to add, uh, as I wanted to go last anyway. (laughs) Because I guess for me, the, the whole purpose of my story is I want to strike a chord with that person who's just like me. They've sat in a church all their life, and maybe they don't have a relationship. They, they kind of like this thing, uh, or maybe they've kind of connected, but it's never been personal. And so we've probably got a lot of those people sitting in churches today that I want them to know that, you know, there he's there. You just have to you just have to connect with him. And, you know, it's very powerful and, and his love and his mercy and his grace uh, are all, you know, sufficient for, for our issues. And, and, you know, that's, that's kind of where I would like to encourage people. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad you guys are writing a book on this because it's definitely something that needs to be read, needs to be passed along. Do you guys have any information on a uh, book release or anything that you know of at this point you can give us? Nothing yet. Uh, we're, we're still in the very early stages, yeah. um, so but we hope to release something very soon. That's great. Well, already hearing you, I can you know from speaking from a, the perspective of a writer who's looking at metaphors and looking at symbols and looking at moments where God shows up in the midst of all. You have a fantastic story to put down in book form, and so I'm so excited to to read it myself. I'm so excited to point our listeners to it when we when we get the opportunity to. So keep going in that. It's going to be, it's going to be a fantastic testimony of God's goodness in your life. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a a testament also to what God's doing. I mean, there have been doors open throughout this process. Mm -hmm. Obviously we've never written a book before. So um, (laughs) to have the people in our lives who have had the experience that they've had, uh, it just goes to prove that, that God is in the long game and he's been in this ever. That's right. That's right. 
Well, Nick, Cassie, thanks guys so much for sharing your story on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. And uh, we're, we're in your corner. We're excited to see what God continues to do. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Aubrey, I literally went from that conversation and I was having dinner with Christy that night and I told her, she's she's a PA, medical professional, right? Right. Told her about the moment that Nick extubated himself, right? Like I mean, when the, he coughed the thing out the of ventilator. No, yes. And I said, I said, you would not believe what happened. This this happened, right? And she goes, Davy, that's impossible. Like that can't Come on. you can't do that. That's you that doesn't happen. <gasps> so if I mean, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. You know what I mean? The Lord saved his life. Isn't that that's incredible? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Those yeah. kinds of stories just get me really excited because it reminds me God is working. Now, I know we see it all the time, right? But I just feel like sometimes we just get so lulled to sleep um, with the with you know with the rhetoric mm. of the power of God and the yeah. presence of God. But it's like, no, if we understood really, truly the power of God, presence of God, the miraculous things that he does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. We would wake up. It's crazy. Whew. Yeah. I, I love, I, I just love the story of God's faithfulness, especially right now. I think we need to hear it in the middle of the COVID yes. pandemic numbers are spiking again. Yes. We can say, but look at what God has done. And I know that's not everybody's story. And yet that's the power of God at work right there in Nick and Cassie's story. Yeah. We can be reminded God, yeah. his power is stronger than this pandemic. Yeah, that's That right. sounds like the bottom line of a sermon right there, Aubrey. Put that in your next sermon. His power gonna, is stronger gonna, than the pandemic. Yep, that's right. That's good. It is. Hey, I want to thank all of our listeners who rate and review uh, Nothing Is Wasted podcast on Apple Podcasts. We would love to encourage you to keep doing that. It helps us create great content yeah. for you. And I actually have a really cool review I want to read. Um, it has a really good title. This person wrote Modern Day Heroes of Faith. Wow. How about that? I like that. Here's what they say. This has been my go-to work commute podcast for almost a year now. And man, what a gift. Hmm. I didn't even realize that I was feeling a disconnect between the God I read about in the Bible and the God of today. Almost as if I subconsciously believed that he was more active and present back then than he is now. The Nothing Is Wasted podcast consistently opens my eyes to the stories of faith that God is still writing all around me today and reminds me that he is the same God who longs to redeem each and every one of our stories. Wow. I love that. You know what I Isn't love awesome? when I think about that, that yes, these, these are all stories and they're just, we're, we're all part of the, all of our stories are part of the meta narrative of what God is doing, the redemptive plan, the yeah. redemptive stories writing. But what's cool about it is, and, and the more we do this podcast, the more I'm reminded of this, no two stories are the same. Mm. That's how uniquely um, invested God is into each one of our stories. Like you kind of see yes, it in Jesus' miracles. so personal, miracles. so creative. Yeah. You see it in his miracles, right? Like he healed several blind people, but never the same way. Did it all differently? Yeah. Yes. And, and so it's like, this is what he's doing. This is what we're reminded of over and over. And we hear stories. We're like, oh my gosh, there he is. There he, he does it again. Something completely different. So unique. Wow. Oh man. Well, listen, uh, remember to text NIW survey to fill out that survey. We'd love your help on this. Um, if this podcast has uh, helped you in any way, benefited you in any way, encouraged you in any way, we want to hear about that. And we want to hear 
some of your insight as to how maybe we can make this better. So text NIW survey to 66866 or go to slash podcast survey. I want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. You can download his new single, Breathe Deep, anywhere you can download or stream music. And uh, we'd love to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at Nothing is Wasted Ministries. You can follow me at Davey Blackburn. You can follow Aubrey at Obsamp, A-U-B-S-A-M-P. And next week, we begin our Surviving Abuse series with a very special guest, Becca Stevens. I'm really excited about this series. Well, excited is probably not the right word. Yeah. I am really proud that we are sharing stories of abuse survivors, um, mostly women who have been through situations of really traumatic, violent abuse, but God, again, in his personal, personal way has shown up. Well, can I I say that, yes, maybe we're not excited about about the stories of this series. But what I am excited about the series is every time we do a series, it becomes very shareable. People, people share the series, right? Because they relate to it. They're like, wow, here's a, here's a, a grouping of several stories that are similar in nature and they share it. And, and what we found with like our sexual betrayal series and, you know, our, um, our addiction series is that we found Mm -hmm. a lot of people kind of coming out of the woodwork and finding breakthrough and healing that they've been needing for years and years and years and years. So I believe the same is going to be true for this series as well. Hey, with that in mind, let's go ahead and take a listen to a clip from your conversation with Becca Stevens, who is the first person in our Surviving Abuse series. You know, I would say that my first memory is grief. So that's how far back it goes. That when I was five, my dad, who was a minister, was killed by a drunk driver. And my mom was 35 years old with five kids. And um, that was kind of the beginning of my waking up into consciousness, if that makes any sense. And, um, you know, what happens a lot of times, and it definitely happened in my life, is that when there's kind of one trauma then the other traumas start to build on that it's almost like you get a vulnerability sticker put on your forehead that you can't even see but for me it was one of the elders in the church began to sexually abuse me about six months later and it went on for several years 